State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Yangsma. This week's episode is part two of my lengthy conversation with Dr. Gregory Dumanoir, a tenure-track instructor with the School of Health and Exercise Sciences at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Dr. Dumanoir is a specialist in cardiovascular physiology, and he really helps to unpack the science behind different types of energy system development and discusses why it is hugely beneficial to have different types of cardiorespiratory training in your arsenal to improve metabolic flexibility of both yourself and your clients. If you haven't already, I suggest that you head over and take a listen to part one prior to indulging in part two. But if you already have, or if scrambled is more your style, then let's dive right in. All right. Welcome back, Greg, to uh, part number two here. I'm excited to dive back in because, uh, I, as I said, I've got so many notes here, so many questions that we probably won't be able to get to just based off of time. But uh, there's a lot of really good stuff because I think myself – more earlier in my career than now because I've learned I've grown a little bit but as a uh, as a personal trainer before I was a strength coach really overlooking the cardiorespiratory cardiovascular system when you're training clients simply because well resistance training is typically more dangerous and uh, it's the part that the client generally doesn't know near as well as they're able to go and hop on a piece of cardio equipment or go out for a walk or a run. And so I was guilty, as most trainers are, of overlooking that and not putting enough time and attention into that. Um, besides, you know, the let's hop you on a treadmill for three hours so you can lose some weight kind of thing, <laughs> you know, the, the typical use of cardio. And, uh, just really overlooking the importance of that, that uh, cardiorespiratory system, the cardiovascular system and the delivery of oxygen for, as you said, recovery, right. Um, is a big piece. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I would agree that the, the resistance training movements probably require more coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a reason we say it's just like riding a bike. <laughs> most people 
know how to ride a bike, especially if it's a cycle ergometer or a stationary bike or an airdyne, they're pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. And it's really easy to just say, keep your heart rate at 135, you know, yeah. or keep it at 120. And and that's okay. Um, you know, I, I think that stimulus can help for things like weight loss and recovery, um, can also help with performance, but you know, there are a bunch of ways to, to piece, you know, high intensity interval training, high intensity, steady state work, you know, sub-threshold intensity, steady state work, and yeah. even sub-threshold um, intensity interval training together um, to, to achieve a whole bunch of goals, whether it's, you know, performance or health. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I really want to get into some of the, the discussions surrounding um, more weight loss use of different substrates in training and different uh, levels of intensity, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, I wanted to just continue along with our conversation from part one and talk a little bit uh, about the determinants of endurance performance. So like, what what are you looking at? And, and what are we um, really tracking in that in that area? Yeah, so um, I think this kind of links really well to the previous question about, you know, if you have someone who's going to look at trying to perform at a marathon, let's say compete rather than complete. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if we're going to, to try to be competitive in some type of endurance event, really what we're looking at is this sort of sustainable velocity or power output. Um, you know, if you're doing a 40k time trial on a bike, the faster you can go, the f- faster you'll be able, or the shorter duration it will be to complete that distance, right? Same with a marathon, 42 kilometers. If I can run faster, I'll be done quicker. Mm-hmm. But what I can't do is come out running at an extremely high velocity and then just slow down as the event goes on, because we probably won't. Um, achieve a, a, a fast time using that strategy yeah um so the things that determine your performance or sustainable velocity are really kind of fivefold. um first would be your like maximal aerobic power or capacity so this would be your vo2 max um you know so in exercise physiology courses or realms we often ask that question oh what's your vo2 max um, you know, and you'll see healthy individuals somewhere in the mid to high forties. Um, you know, you'll see elite endurance athletes sort of in the seventies. Um, it doesn't really matter what you're measuring. I mean, you're measuring the amount of oxygen that your body can take in transport and utilize Yeah. in mils per minute per kilogram of body weight. Yeah. Um, you know, and we'll see the highest recorded ones in and around like 94 or 96. Um, on the other side of that, if you have heart failure, um, or you're on the list for a transplant, you might have a VO2 max of 10. Yeah. Um, you know, activities of daily living require an oxygen consumption of about 12. Right. So if your VO2 max is 10, you're working above the maximum amount of oxygen you can take in transport and utilize. 
to do work. And this means that you're relying on your anaerobic metabolism to get up off the couch and walk yeah. to the fridge. Um, somebody who's got a VO2 max of 94, those activities of daily living, they don't require, I mean, they require 10% of their yeah. um, aerobic energy capabilities. So they're really easy. Um, and typically what we see is higher velocities, at least in endurance or aerobic events, require more oxygen. Yeah. So if you have a higher VO2 max and you have this really high ceiling, sorry, um, roof, like peak of your roof, um, you know, that's a high potential for um, a high velocity. Yeah. The next piece that comes into play is what percentage of your VO2 max can you sustain? Mm. Um, so we'd call that your fractional utilization. Um, and people probably have heard this as your like anaerobic threshold. And so there's an intensity of exercise where your aerobic system can't supply all of the energy to do the muscular contractions. So once you pass that intensity, you then rely on some anaerobic metabolism to provide a little bit more energy to do contractions. Yeah. The drawback of going above that threshold is that you produce these sort of fatigue relating byproducts that, um, you know, result in impairment and contraction um, and fatigue. And so we said that the VOT max is kind of like the ceiling or the roof, the anaerobic threshold would be the, the ceiling. Right, so if you have a house with a really high roof and then a really high ceiling, you can sustain energy production and velocity at a really high rate, right? But mm -hmm. it, let's say you have a really high roof but a really low ceiling, you're relying on anaerobic metabolism to run, run faster. Yeah. Um, so you can you can achieve the same sustainable um, power output or velocity with kind of two different strategies there. I can make someone's anaerobic threshold higher and not really train their max, yeah. or I can train their max. And as I make their max higher, usually that drags the, the anaerobic threshold up, right? 80% of hundred is 80, but 80% of 200, you know, is 160. So you, yeah. You, you know, made it higher just by making the VO2 max higher. Yeah. Um, the other one that's really important would be like efficiency or economy. Um, and so that's, you know, what is the oxygen cost for the velocity that you're running at um, or cycling at? And what we see is that um, people who are really efficient require sort of less oxygen um, to produce a given power output. Mm -hmm. and that has things to do with like fiber types, um, you know, your skill at that activity. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, more type one fibers are more efficient. Um, so again, going back to the conversation about the Ethiopians with that long limb length, really good at running and then a high percentage of type one fibers, you know, they're quite efficient runners. Yeah. Whereas me, when I'm running, like my arms out to the side and, you know, bobbing back and forth, yeah. where you think about someone on a bike, if they're, you know, really solid in that cycling position versus rocking back and forth, um, you know, using more arms, 
in cycling is not a very good thing. So yeah. that skill transfer plays a big role. Um, there's two other things that kind of relate to endurance performance. And one would be this like anaerobic work capacity or W prime. And, and that's the amount of anaerobic energy stores that you have. Um, and what's interesting is that that's a finite amount of energy. So if I work at a really high intensity, I use that energy up really quickly. But if I work at a just above that sort of anaerobic threshold, um, it takes me a lot longer to use up that energy. Yeah. Um, so there are ways to, you know, train to improve the amount of anaerobic energy that you have. And that's kind of related to um, things around your ability to clear and oxidize lactate, for example, and hydrogen ions. Um, and then your buffering capabilities, whether it's, you know, protein related buffers or, or um, transporters within the muscle cell. Um, and then the last one is your oxygen uptake kinetics. Um, so you've got maximal aerobic power capacity, you've got fractional utilization or anaerobic threshold, you've got economy or efficiency, that anaerobic work capacity, and then the last thing is oxygen uptake kinetics. And really that's how fast your aerobic energy system can turn on. Um, and so typically what we see is in healthy individuals, it takes about two minutes for your aerobic metabolism or oxidative phosphorylation system to attain a steady state during yeah. sort of moderate intensity activities. Um, I think the fastest I've seen is Paula Radcliffe. There's a paper case study on Paula Radcliffe. She held the women's marathon world record for years and years and years. Um, and she had uh, achieved an aerobic steady state within um, like 32 seconds. <laughs> um, so she was able to produce energy completely via her aerobic system before most competitors would get to 63%. Like, I mean, it, it's so yeah. fast. Yeah. So having a really fast oxygen uptake um, kinetics means you don't rely on anaerobic metabolism. So anytime you have a transition in intensity, yeah, you have this sort of delayed response in your aerobic system meeting the energy demands. So mm -hmm. if you have really slow oxygen uptake kinetics, like older adults, for example, um, in my PhD, we looked at the oxygen uptake kinetics in older adults, and some of them achieved steady states in over six minutes. So um you know even longer 12 minutes and some really deconditioned older adults um so so those individuals are relying on anaerobic metabolism every time they switch intensity yeah um so if you think about it from endurance performance if you have to run up a hill that's going to be a change in intensity and you, you may rely on anaerobic metabolism if you have slow oxygen uptake kinetics more than someone who's got fast oxygen uptake kinetics. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so that actually brings up a whole bunch more questions. So when we're looking at, like, let's just stick on um, the O2 uptake kinetics for a second, yeah. because I think it's very, very fascinating, the, the change and the difference between what the average is at two minutes and then what Paula Radcliffe was able to do with 32 seconds. Yeah, yeah. So what can the average individual do to 
really focus training on improving that piece, the O2 uptake kinetics specifically? Yeah. So again, let's go back to the sort of previous session where we said we should do things that target the cardiovascular system, the muscle um, capillarization and the mitochondria. Mm-hmm. So the, the things that limit your oxygen uptake kinetics are sort of, there's, there's sort of two camps. Um, one camp would suggest that it's sort of delivery of oxygen that's an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other camp would say that it's utilization of oxygen that's the issue. So the camp that suggests that it's utilization would say that it, it takes time for aerobic enzymes to get activated. It takes time to take a molecule of glucose and run it through um, aerobic glycolysis to produce pyruvate to go into Krebs cycle to then produce reducing equivalents to go to the electron transport chain to then use oxygen to produce ATP. Yeah. Now we can open up our biochemistry primer for exercise sciences and go through all of those things. Yeah. Um, but you know, we need to know that we take a glucose and there's 11 steps to turn it into a pyruvate. That pr- yeah. pyruvate goes into the um, citric acid cycle or Krebs cycle, and there's another four, 12 or 14 steps. And then all of the, the products of that go into the electron transport chain, and there's another three or four steps. Mm-hmm. And at each of those steps, there's an enzyme that controls that step. And so we need to have some sort of signal that says, turn on. The other thing we have to do is we have to transport the glucose into the cell or we use the stored glycogen in the cell and then we produce the pyruvate and the pyruvate has to get transported into the mitochondria. So there's another process there that requires some time. Yeah. Um, so let's say someone like Paula Radcliffe, her aerobic enzymes have a high rate of activation and all of those transporters um, or flux points of moving things around are really quick in Paula Radcliffe. Yeah. Now there's some suggestion that interval training does a, a really good job at training those enzymes and transporters to turn on and off. Um, so again, if we, if we look at the, the high intensity interval training side of, of the equation, what we see is this like high rate of ATP utilization, which produces a high amount of ADP or adenosine diphosphate. Yeah. When that phosphagen bond's broken, energy is released for, for muscle contraction. And in high-intensity interval training, the switch from lots of ATP to ADP to ATP to ADP stimulates a, a sort of controller called AMP kinase. We're not going to go through what the AMP stands for because it's just (laughs) alphabet soup. Um, But the stimulation of that AMPK or AMP kinase turns on another sort of metabolic master switch called PGC1-alpha. Again, alphabet soup, so we won't talk too much of that. But when we turn on PGC1-alpha, that creates some mitochondrial DNA expression to make more mitochondria as well as to make more enzymes that are related to aerobic metabolism. Mm. So having that energetic flux of 30 seconds on, 15 seconds on, one minute on, one minute off is a really profound stimulus 
um, for that PGC1 alpha. Now that really tends to have an impact on the O2 utilization side. Now, if you're in the camp of oxygen uptake kinetics control that says, no, it's O2 delivery. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that you're really attacking the O2 delivery part as well if you do high intensity interval training. Yeah. So the other side of this whole equation is if we do sustained contraction efforts, sustained is not the right word. If we do um, rhythmic repetitive contractions um, for a longer period of time, so sub threshold intensity steady state type activities. Mm -hmm. That turns on another pathway where there's lots of calcium release into the muscle cell, um, reuptake of calcium, release of calcium. And so this changing calcium content in the cell also has an impact on that PGC1-alpha. So we see this steady state activity increasing PGC1-alpha activation through a different mechanism, not the AMPK, but through calcium activation. And this also has an impact on that sort of mitochondrial biogenesis side of things. So that steady state activity also turns on the sort of genetic response to make more enzymes and more mitochondria. Hmm. I think the advantage, and okay, I, maybe I'm showing my bias that I think that steady state work is important. Um, I think the advantage of some of that steady state work now is that we do some things that improve O2 delivery as well. So maybe we make a bigger heart or a bigger chamber size, we make the blood vessels a little bit more compliant and we improve our ability to deliver oxygen. Yeah. So, yeah. So again, this is the argument for, you know, if you, if you want to get better at endurance performance, you probably need to target all five of those things. Yeah. But I think what we would see is more direct targeting of our training towards VO2 max, anaerobic threshold, and efficiency. And then we'd see just by the fact that we're doing good training, oxygen uptake, kinetics, speeding, and that anaerobic work capacity also getting a little bit bigger. I'm not sure if I would specifically target oxygen uptake, kinetics as a training strategy. Yeah. So... Yeah. Uh, and I think this goes back to what you were saying at the beginning with regards to having a, a good assessment and an understanding of the client that you have in front of you and maybe which buckets they struggle in, right? So if they yeah. do have a really high roof, but a low ceiling, bringing up that ceiling will be important. And if they have kind of a, a you know, moderate roof, you know, but high ceiling, right? Being able to, right? So figure out which bucket needs to be filled and then and then going after that with most of the time that you're you're putting in there, but yeah, making yeah. sure that you hit both sides of that. I think it's good. Uh, so this actually brings uh, up another question because I think it has to do perfectly with that, that uh, both the anaerobic threshold, so that fractional utilization, as well as the, the O2 uptake kinetics is when we're looking at something like those repetitive um, wind gates that we were talking about earlier, we were talking about a lot of those metabolic byproducts being produced. And when they're really, really strong, the body needs to get rid of them. Uh, and so one of the responses the body has is feeling nauseous, puking, headaches, those types of things. And so when we have a client who experiences that on a, a fairly regular basis, 
what are some of the things that uh, we as trainers and strength and conditioning coaches can do to uh, minimize the effects of that while still kind of pushing them to that limit without pushing them over and having them feel and ruin the rest of the session? Yeah, so I think it's probably two things. Um, you know, I'll go back on on my bias of a, a really good cardiovascular system. Um, so I think one of the things that we want to try to do from a performance perspective is we don't want to get to that state where we're using, you know, glycolysis and, and anaerobic metabolism as the main energy system to produce energy. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you have a 30 second all out thing that you have to do, you're going to have to use your anaerobic system. So, you know, there's no way we can make your aerobic system that powerful that you won't have to use the anaerobic system. Yeah. But if we can make the aerobic system contribute more, so like you said, bring the roof and the ceiling up as, as high as possible, um, maybe we don't have to rely on anaerobic metabolism as much. Yeah. Now, that might not be the best approach for, like you said, the 30-second intervals or the, um, you know, let's say the, the sort of, you know, 2010 Tabata kind of thing. Um, or if we're doing sort of high-intensity resistance type training where we're doing minute on, minute off type stuff, EMOMs or AMRAPs and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, yes, a highly trained aerobic system will help in the recovery period. Um, so, you know, clearing lactate, managing hydrogen ions, managing the high amounts of ammonia and, and um, high levels of calcium interfering with sort of reuptake, um, that, that sort of stuff is mitigated by having a, a, a high aerobic system. So your aerobic system is like the garbage man at the end of the interval. Mm -hmm. um, you know, replacing ATP is all done aerobically. Yeah. Um, so again, that's sort of evidence for a, a highly trained aerobic system. But if you're really focusing on anaerobic effort events, and, and I think this is debatable in, in sport, again, goes back to that comment, if you're the hockey player that runs around the ice crazy for two minutes, probably not a good hockey player, don't understand the technical and tactical demands of the game. And then if you're going all out for two minutes, that's not using your aerobic system, that's using your glycolytic system. That's maybe different than coming to the gym and doing the, the sort of 30 on, 30 off kind of, kind of things where we're trying to train the glycolytic system. And I think in that case, really what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring somebody right to the point where they're going to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. But finding that intensity that doesn't push them past that. Um, do I have an exact prescription for that? I'd say no. You probably have to do some trial and error. Um, using devices like rolling ergometers, airdynes, ski ergs, um, you know, Kaiser M3 bikes that have sort of power output displays on them. Yeah. That would be the way I would tackle that. You know, I want you to hold, you know, 400 watts for 30 seconds. 
And if that makes somebody ridiculously fatigued, okay, maybe I need to back it off to, to 350. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think you can do is with play with the interval like duration as well as the recovery duration. Um, you know, so there's these ideas that if you're really working on the glycolytic side of sort of high intensity interval training, your recovery should probably be, you know, more towards the passive side or very, very light, um, you know, and it can be longer um, to get somebody back to a state where they feel a little bit more ready to go, like they've cleared some, some byproducts. I mean, half time of recovery for some of these systems, you know, the ATP PCR system, to get half of your ATP and PCR recovered takes sort of 30 seconds, but to get all the way recovered takes about five minutes, you know, to clear sort of muscle lactate, probably have a half time of about five ish minutes, but a full time more towards the 20 minute period to clear hydrogen ion, which, is a, a maybe a better representative of some of the, the fatiguing byproducts. It's a little bit longer. Maybe it's eight minutes in the muscle and for a half time and, you know, a bit longer than that for, a, you know, maybe 30 minutes for a, a full time. I'm not saying take a 30 minute interval, like yeah. recovery interval, but just be aware that you might need that five minutes or eight minutes to clear some of that byproduct. Whereas if you just used a, a one minute or two minute recovery bout, your next interval bout is just adding to that level of fatigue related byproducts. So by the time you get to the fifth interval, you've got absolutely no recovery from a, a byproduct perspective. Yeah. Um, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know, think so. So again, don't, don't avoid the work. I think do the work, play with the intensity duration relationship of the work, but, but also don't be afraid to, to give a little bit more um, recovery um, to, to clear some of that byproduct. Now, the other side of that is, are you really adapting to that stimulus if you let everything clear every time? Yeah. I think you walk that fine line of making somebody throw up versus making them adapt to that stimulus. And you probably got to pull back a little bit if people are feeling really sick. Yeah. And I think with, you know, when you look at uh, whether it be, you know, cardiorespiratory training or whether it be, you know, resistance training, that progressive overload idea and like, where are you starting and how fast you progress is going to be very individual is going to be very specific to the person you have in front of you and how they're responding to the stimulus. And then you're going to have to change things like all the time, right? So you might have somebody who you've planned specific interval, specific maybe wattage that you're going to do the, the, the intensity at on a, you know, cycle ergometer or something like that. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, so that was a bit too high. You go down and then you add a little bit more rest. And so you adjust those intervals. And I think not being afraid to do that is really important when right, we're looking right. at training and working with clients is not being afraid to change things. Even though you may have something pre-planned, you may have an idea of what will work. It may not work. And what do you do in that, in the face of it? Are you adaptable in that situation? You as yeah. a, as a trainer, right? And I think it goes back to your comment earlier too, about 
you know, as a, as a young or new personal trainer, strength coach, you spent your time focusing on the resistance training side of things because people needed more coaching and you wouldn't be afraid to drop a set if the person looked fatigued or you wouldn't be afraid to have a regression of an exercise if their form looked compromised yeah but but i think you're right that maybe we we haven't given ourselves permission to do that from uh, energy systems training or um or cardio respiratory training perspective yeah yeah i think when it comes to cardio, a lot of people are, you know, kind of balls to the wall, push as hard as you can, you know, you'll only get what you put in, you know, oh, you know, whatever, whatever you want to say, whatever cliche you want to put in there, you know, right. or, or, or fashionable t-shirt that you want to wear. Uh, there's, there's that idea that more is better. And so mm-hmm. you just do more and more and more when there's, there's kind of that fine line, right? There's that diminishing returns where you kind of go to a point and then it just starts going downhill from there. The body actually starts to reject what you're doing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I would say the comments of more is better or less is better. I mean, I would disagree with those and just say better yeah. is better. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like there's, um, there was a quote. Have you ever, there's a, a show on Netflix called Quantico. Uh, no, not Quantico, um, Waco. So it's all about Waco, Texas, the stuff that went on there. Um, and, but one like has nothing to do with that. But one of the quotes from the negotiator is that there is a, there is a, a, like a caveat to power. The more power you bring to a situation, the more likely you are to encounter resistance to that power. Mm-hmm. So I, I talk about that when I'm talking about manual therapy, right? When you look at massage or foam rolling, if you're wincing in you know, in the presence of some manual therapy or foam rolling, your body is actually rejecting what you're doing and it's getting tighter because of that. Um, just as you push way too much weight, your body's going to reject that more than it's going to adapt to it. And you might get a poor adaptation rather than the adaptation you're looking for. And I think it's the same in this scenario as well. Yeah, totally. totally. So unfortunately, we are um, pretty much out of time. So I just want to quickly walk through uh, like a very quick lightning round Um and then I will uh, I'll let you get out of here. So yeah, yeah. three quick questions. Uh, first things that come to mind uh, and uh, we'll go from there. So first question is the top three books that you've read on any topic. Yeah, I gave quite a bit of thought to this one because you set this up a little bit earlier. Um, I think one that's like culture related would be um, Legacy by James Kerr. That's the All Blacks. Um, story um yeah it just kind of really resonated with me as i as i went through it um another one that's impacted me immensely as an educator is a book called educated um the author's tara westover um unbelievable story unbelievable story um i probably got through it in a day and a half um And then the last one I would say, I'll give you a sort of textbook kind of one, would be um, Science and Application of High Intensity Interval Training. Um, That's um, Paul Larson and Martin Boucher's um, new textbook and course that they have. Um, I don't know how he did it, but Paul wrote 600 pages on high intensity interval training. Wow. Um, And the, the sort of second half of that book is all sort of sport and domain specific stuff. So you know, written by, let's say the hockey ones got um, Adam Douglas from Hockey Canada wrote the 
chapter on on hockey training so you know really powerful resource yeah um, for this type of stuff i love it um so i actually i was looking over at my bookshelf as you were saying a couple of those books so legacy i've read i have that um and then educated i haven't read yet but my wife has and she has it here somewhere on this book i was looking for as we speak yeah read it tonight now that you're starting the academic year i will huge impact yeah i will and then um i don't have that textbook but i will i will absolutely pick it up after this uh this conversation um next question your top three mentors so far in your career um i'm gonna ask for four because first one i'm gonna say my parents of course they you know always stood behind me so um gotta say thanks to them yep um and then the other three um probably my high school basketball coach um tom elniski uh when i first met him he was overweight high stressed bobby knight throwing chairs kind of guy (laughs) um and i thought man i never want to play basketball for this guy but then by the time i got to high school he was like 160 pounds zen master super fit um and i kind of went to a high school in a rough neighborhood um and he turned a lot of potential criminals into really good contributing members of society yeah Um, unfortunately he passed away from brain cancer when i was in university but uh again his sort of legacy is is living on which is great to see yeah that's um and then my other two would be my master's degree supervisor and my phd supervisor so um, Gord Bell was my master's supervisor, and I still say to this day, when I grow up, I want to be just like Gord Bell, but <laughs> I realize that I'm as old as he was when he was teaching me <laughs> my yeah. master's degree, so I better grow up. <laughs> um, and he just provided me with this like applied sports and exercise physiology degree um, that was, you know, sort of amazing training rowers for 10 weeks and he was there every minute and the guy could run four bo2 max tests by himself at a time um just this old school exercise and sport scientist yeah um and then my phd supervisor don patterson is kind of one of these originals in the world of uh, exercise across the lifespan so he started his career looking at kids then he moved into adults and then he moved into older adults, um, you know, a couple hundred publications across his career and, you know, director of um, the Canadian Centre for Activity and Aging and president of the Canadian Society for Exercise Physiology. And those guys just, you know, opened doors and showed me the way to to both do science and teach people. So I'm indebted to them beyond belief. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll allow you to have four. It's okay. Um, uh, technically, that's that's five because you said your parents, so that's two. Uh, so, anyways, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's like that's... when people say, "Is that Greg with two G's?" <laughs> yeah, the beginning and the end. There's two G's. Yeah. People who spell their name G R E G G. That's actually three G's. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it um okay and then uh i other than grow up what would greg of today say to 20 year old greg 
Oh man, I, I'm not sure how to answer that one because like I said, I, I wouldn't wish my path on anybody, but it got me exactly what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe it's don't sell that first house. I don't know. <laughs> um, hang on to it. Yeah. <laughs> or don't buy that first house. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I think I would just say still like take those opportunities um, and take the ones that just sort of happen um you know be nice start with good people and the rest of things will sort of take care of themselves yeah um but i don't know if there's too much in my life that i would want to you know do over or take another stab at to be fair yeah um maybe don't put your daughter in competitive dance because it costs <laughs> a lot of money and uses up all my free time yeah yeah I hear you. Like, I don't. I don't have kids, so the house thing. I just bought my first house, so we'll. You know, hopefully, I don't have the same. Don't sell the first house. Regret. Um, I don't have kids yet, so I'll take your advice about not putting them in competitive dance. Uh, It's what I open the semester with in my intro classes. Is (laughs) these are my daughters. This one dances all the time and this other one we just had her so we could do experiments on her and yeah it's a picture a video of her doing a vo2 max test at four thousand meters in <laughs> california white mountain so yeah yeah i actually, actually I, I love the idea of of having your time and almost doing experiments constantly like because in the profession we're in we're all about <clears throat> development and adaptation and so i'm like hey you know when i have kids they're my personal guinea pigs i guess you know um yeah yeah to to run experiments on i think you should uh film your kids growing up trying to do physically active things Mm -hmm. Um, because watching that progression of their sort of growth and motor development is pretty cool yeah yeah i know with uh, my nephew he's now coming up at three and a half now and uh yeah it's been i was i was there and we actually filmed his first time ever rolling and so that was pretty cool. And um, like when he was just crawling, I would crawl on the ground with him all throughout and now he's walking and, but you still see him, you know, learning how to climb stairs better and learning how to climb into and out of cars without having the help of somebody else. So yeah, as you said, really, really cool. And when it's my kid, I'll film it all and I'll, I'll maybe post some of it or create a- you Just save it for their wedding day. Oh man. Yeah. So many, and I'm actually thankful I was born when I was because the amount of stupid things that I did and embarrassing things that I did when I was young, um, man. Yeah, no comment. No comment. Uh, Okay, so I just want to end off by asking you, where can listeners, where can the audience go to find more information about you and uh, what you're doing and maybe some of the the research that you've got going on? Yeah, so our faculty website is like hes.ok.ubc.ca. I mean, a Google search of, you know, Greg Dumanoir, UBC Okanagan would find some of the things, take you to my sort of academic homepage. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me on Twitter at G Dumanoir. Um, not super active, but uh, usually it's educationally related. Um, Instagram, I think, is Greg Dumanoir. 
you can tell I'm super into the <laughs> social media. I look at it, but I don't post on it very often. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, if people want to reach out, I'm, I'm happy to chat via email. So it's just greg.dumanoir at ubc.ca. And I'm sure we can get that in the, the show notes or episode notes so that people yeah. can find it. Sounds good. Uh, well, thanks for your time. Uh, we went a little bit past when I said I would guarantee you we were going to be done, but no problem. No problem. So much, so much interest because uh, this is an area where I was really good at at the very beginning, right? When I graduated university, I had all this knowledge and then I kind of let it slip a little bit. And it's so funny how much you forget. And then when we were talking to just so much interest in uh, the cardiorespiratory, the cardiovascular system and the response to training and how we can better prep not only athletes, but general population as well for, you know, success throughout their life, throughout aging, throughout athletics. So uh, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, it's been fun. My pleasure. Uh, and uh, we'll have to get you on because as I said, I've got a whole bunch of questions. So we'll have to get it, get you on again, um, maybe the beginning of second semester or something like that. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Uh, take care, Greg. Okay. Thanks, Adam. State of the Industry Podcast.